Welcome to Sojourn, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're a guest with us this morning, uh, I hope I'm not the first person to say this to you, uh, but with all sincerity, welcome. We're glad that you're here, that you would join us uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Will, uh, and I'm on staff here uh, with the church, um, as well as working on a church plant in the next county over. And if we've never met before, it'd be a great uh, privilege to meet you, so feel free to grab me at some point. Uh, after the service. Um, But this morning we're going to be continuing along in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, one of the most famous sermons ever preached, and we're going to be now moving on a new chapter. I don't know when we started chapter 5, but we're going to be moving on to chapter 6. So if you brought a Bible with you, open up to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a bunch of extra here, so uh, don't be shy. Raise your hand. We've got some people passing them out, and uh, you can uh, read along with us. And then if you don't have a Bible at all at home, Uh, you can take that home with you as well. Um, So we've got some people passing those out, and we'll be in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1, and we'll continue down to verse 4. So read along with me. Our Lord says to us this morning, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who is in heaven, your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this morning. Um, Grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be with friends and church family. Lord, I acknowledge this morning that there's some of us in this room who have had just an awesome weekend, hot though it was. Maybe we spent time at the pool with friends or family, and we're here this morning, and things are going well, and We're excited to hear from you. And yet there may be others of us gathered in this room who um, feel distant from you, are wondering what in the world you're doing in their life, perhaps feel confused or perplexed. Um, There are others going through a very difficult moment right now. Um, And yet there are others gathered in our midst who don't know you at all and aren't even sure if you exist. For this collective group of us gathered here before this morning under your word, our prayer to you, O God, is to speak to us. Let your word uh, ring out this morning and meet us where we are. Lord, one thing that's true of all of us is that we all long for approval and for acceptance and ultimately for praise. And I pray that you would reveal to us this morning that all of the approval, acceptance, and praise that we could ever long for is, your, is ours, is ours through what you've done on our behalf on the cross. So Lord, would you impress on, that, uh, on us this morning? I also pray that through this morning, you would shape and mold our church family to be a generous people. And not because we have to or because our arm is being twisted into it, but out of the abundance that we've received in Christ, we would then be motivated to be generous to those in need. 
I pray that as a result of this morning that we would be more committed than ever to addressing needs of uh, poverty and needs of suffering that exist around us. Would you stir in our hearts this morning a desire to be generous in this manner? Lord, we submit this morning to you. We ask that you would speak to us and we pray all of this together now in Jesus' name, amen. If you listen to the This American Life podcast, you might remember a story recently about a band named the Ghosts of Pasha. Uh, This was a new band. It started in the Northeast somewhere, just a few friends that got together, not much more than a typical garage band, but they wanted to get some momentum going with their new music. So they put out a few songs on SoundCloud, and they decided to take their band on a tour uh, through the Northeast and New York and things like that. Their first show was what you might expect for a new band, Uh, Just a a few people in there. No one really knew who they were. It was pretty low-key. But there was one stop along their tour that was uh, particularly exciting for them. It was a venue in New York City, and they expected a similar type of turnout than what they had had at the previous event. But as they started the show, the room began to totally fill fill up, and not just with random people who were uh, there to hear anyone. They were actually excited to see the ghosts of Pasha. They started the show. The people were singing along to the lyrics as a band who had been around for a long time. Uh, They uh, continued on with the show. People were calling for encores and shouting out. There's even, if you go to shows like this, that typical guy in the front flailing his body around with excitement in an awkward manner, almost knocking people out as they went through the show that you see at most rock shows. It was everything that a new band could hope for as they were beginning their new pursuit to stardom. There was only one problem with the whole thing. Almost the entire audience was fake. It was put on by a group called Improv Anywhere, which is a group in New York City that they do the types of things like go to the mall and they'll start randomly singing together or do a flash mob, just various things that are pranks and stunts that they perform uh, out when they're out there. So this group, Improv Anywhere, downloaded these songs off SoundCloud. They found this tour from this tiny band. They memorized the songs so that they would know them by heart. And they went there and they strategically placed themselves throughout the crowd to create this fake, uh, exciting band experience. Now the question for us this morning to consider as it related to the uh, experience that they had is what did the ghosts of Pasha think about it? You may be surprised to know that they actually hated it. They felt like the butt of a joke. One of them described an experience that it felt like bringing him back to uh, his childhood days, being made fun of at school. It was just a big fraud, a big fake, even though it was the most exciting uh, audience that they would ever experience, they described hating it because it was fake. There's an issue that pertains to all of us as we relate to God that involves outward actions that look perfectly fine with an inward motive that's totally detached from them. Jesus has a word for it. He calls it hypocrisy. When our inward motive and our heart's desire is completely detached from what can be seen on the surface by everyone. And you may be saying, well, wait a minute, I thought that hypocrisy was saying one thing and doing another. But when you really think about it, if you say one thing and do another, all that you've proved is that deep in your heart you don't actually believe what it is that you're saying. 
It goes much deeper than just our words and into the very motive of our hearts. Do you guys remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees who were making a big deal of him when he wasn't washing his hands according to the custom of the elders? He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. You people honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And as we continue on our our series through the Sermon on the Mount, this uh, disconnect between action and inward motivation, this hypocrisy will see clearly sometimes manifests itself through what I'll just call religious observances. This is what Jesus is going to begin confronting here in chapter 6. If you look down in verse 1, you see kind of the overarching theme that will guide the rest of these next few uh, lines of teaching from him. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For if you do, you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So you have in Jesus' day this very devout religious community and people who are doing all sorts of religious observances, and yet on the outside it looks great, but at the end of the day, their real desire is, is to receive praise and approval from those who are watching. There's a disconnect between their outward action and the real desire of their hearts. And if we're honest, this is an issue we all face In a very weird and distorted way, I think we have a tendency to offer up fake religious observances like these, or really any other activity for that matter, in order to gain acceptance and approval in the eyes of people. If we're honest, at times we feel this sense of insecurity about the way people view us, or we wonder what they might think about us, and we put on an act with the hope of securing their praise and acceptance. Maybe for you, it's the way you display your knowledge of the Bible or theology. And on the outside, it looks like someone who really loves God. But deep down inside, you're someone who wants the approval of those who are listening. Maybe it manifests itself with evangelistic zeal. Someone who really goes out and shares the gospel passionately. But deep down, there is in there a motive that people would see you and praise you for it. If I could be honest with you this morning, even standing before you preaching a sermon that's all from the Bible and all about God's word, there can be within me or any of us on the stage this morning a desire to not only do that, but to receive approval and respect from those listening. Maybe it manifests itself in the way that you parent, wanting your kids to act a certain way so that people will look at you and praise you for your good parenting. Maybe it manifests itself in the way you practice hospitality where you break your back to keep your home in order and to have everything uh, looking great for when people come over uh, so that they'll feel welcomed and appreciated. But deep down inside, your desire is that they would respect you and, and praise you for how hospitable you are. All of these demonstrate an outward action motivated by an inward desire that craves acceptance. And one of the ways that we do this famously is through acts of charity. In an attempt to hypocritically use charitable causes to to gain praise and approval. And what I want to show us this morning is that this type of hypocrisy doesn't have to reflect the way we engage in charity. And what I hope becomes crystal clear before our eyes this morning is that out of the acceptance that we have in Jesus, we can give generously to those in need only before God in secret. 
out of the acceptance that we have in Jesus, we can give generously to those in need before the eyes of God in secret. And what I want to do this morning to break our time out, if you want a little bit of a roadmap for where, our, where we're headed, the first thing that I want to talk about that this passage is going to show us is how to give like a hypocrite. What does hypocritical, charitable giving look like? And then after that, I want to discuss what does Christian giving look like? How has God called us to give in secrecy? And then lastly, I want to consider together the, the ultimate gift that enables our secret giving. So let's look together first at this hypocritical giving seen here in verse 2. Jesus says, if you look down in verse 2, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So in Jesus's day, giving to the poor was a regular duty that was expected of people in that society. There was no welfare system or social security for people to fall back on. So if the poor was going to be cared for, it was going to come through uh, the synagogue and people giving to it. Yet from the sounds of it in this passage, the people of that day turned giving into quite a, a spectacle. First of all, that it was done in a very public place. He says like on a street or in a synagogue, a place where lots of people could see. And then there's this business about a trumpet being sounded. If you could just imagine, we're gathered here in, in sojourn before a service starts during our time of fellowship, and you see one of the worship leaders climb to the stage with a bugle, and they play a particular note that signals that it's time for someone to give a charitable gift, and they say, we'd like to now interrupt your regularly scheduled time of uh, mingling and fellowship for a very exciting announcement. Joe Smith is going to be making a donation to our benevolence fund. So if you could all direct your attention to him as he fills out his check to care for the poor. It sounds absurd, right? But this is the type of picture that Jesus is painting of how charitable contributions happened in his day. I don't know if there was a literal trumpet that was blown or not, but that's not the issue. They were giving in such a way that the contributor was celebrated for their gift. And do you see why it's hypocritical? Do you see the disconnect between the outward action and the inward motive? They were more interested in making sure they were known as, genu as, as generous benefactors than in honestly helping the poor. They wanted a reputation more than they actually wanted to relieve poverty. And Jesus says that their giving was, to be done, was done to be honored by men, to show people that they were the kinds of people who cared about the poor and the marginalized. The reason they did this wasn't really to care for the poor, but to show that they were kind-hearted and generous people. They outwardly displayed a charitable attitude which was disconnected from their inward desire to receive respect and praise. And Jesus says, do you know what their reward is when they give like this? Their reward is the praise of man because the God who called them to give generously in the first place is nowhere to be found in this kind of giving. They wanted to use their charitable means to receive praise. Well, that praise that they received from people was their ultimate reward. Now, before we pin this down as a first century issue in Jewish synagogues and denounce their hypocrisy, I think we should realize that this type of dualistically motivated charitable giving is just as present with us as it was with them. Let me just ask you guys, has there ever been a time where you've given to your church or a charity or someone in need and you've done it in such a way so that you would be noticed for it? 
Or maybe you didn't do it in such a way that you'd be noticed for it, but you put no effort into keeping it a secret. Or perhaps even a little bit deeper than that, maybe you did make sure that it was done in secret, but there was something inside your heart that really wanted, man, if someone I respect or someone I looked up to knew about this gift, that would be really great. Has that desire ever been alive in your heart, in your own charitable giving? And it doesn't just have to apply to churchy giving like this. Culturally, we're more excited about social causes and have more ways to get behind them than ever before. Whether it's a GoFundMe page for a good cause or wearing a t-shirt from our favorite charity or uh, back when Toms were in and and we, we got the shoes, those were popular maybe three or four years ago. If we're honest, many of us not only bought the shoes because we genuinely believed in the cause and wanted to provide shoes for someone in need, but also did this to demonstrate that we're the kinds of people who believe in causes and try to help those in need. This desire to be seen as charitable people, this subtle hypocrisy, I think, can be found in each of us. And I think what makes it a little bit more tricky for us is it's usually not 100% a good desire or a 100% bad desire, but tangled up in a desire to help the poor or to do something good is mixed within it a desire to be recognized, to be seen for it, and to be praised for it. It's not usually just one or the other. I remember being on a trip with a friend uh, in another city uh, who was an atheist, and I was trying to find ways during that weekend to be able to share the gospel with him or, you know, to show him the value of Christianity. And we were walking out from dinner one night, uh, headed back to our hotel, and someone who was homeless came up to us and was uh, pleading with us to get them a place to stay because they didn't have anywhere to go for the night. So there I am met right in front of my atheist friend who hates Christianity uh, with like, what what do I do at this moment? What a great opportunity for me to uh, demonstrate what what kind of Christian I am. I'm not one of those hard-nosed Republican Christians that's just going to tell him to go get a job. Like, I could show him that I really care about people and want to help him. So I have that desire going on, but at the same time, I also have this the real desire that this, that this guy would have a place to stay that night. And so we end up going and we, we pay for his hotel room that night. But you see in that, and I think for many of us, just this tangled up uh, motivation to be seen for our charity while also doing good acts of charity. And so in light of that, in light of the fact that our giving can be uh, influenced by this hypocrisy, Jesus gives us some instructions on how to protect ourselves from it. He gives us some precautions on how we can go about doing our giving. And so let's look secondly then at how to give like a Christian. If you look at verse 3 and 4, this is what Jesus says. He says, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that, you may, uh, th- so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who is in heaven, uh, your, I'm sorry, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So two implications from, from what Jesus is calling his people to here. The first is just the simple act of giving. He calls on his people to be the kinds of people who give. The instruction here is not if you give to uh, the poor or if you are involved in charity, but when you do it. It's expected of God's people that they would be generous and that they would reflect God's generosity to them in the way that they handle their own finances. John MacArthur had a great quote on this point. He said, God made all of his creation to give. He made the sun, the moon, the stars, the clouds, the earth, the plants to give. He also designed his supreme creation, man, to give, but fallen man is the most reluctant giver in all of God's creation. God 
is a generous God. He's constantly giving of himself. The most famous passage in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world he gave. And God calls on that, especially as redeemed people who have been the recipients of God's giving and the recipients of God's generosity to be the kinds of people who give. Redeemed and renewed Christians are able to display generosity, especially in light of the generosity that we've received in Christ. So let me talk about two practical ways that I think this should be happening in our our lives. I think the first is that the Lord calls us to give to our local church. There's plenty of other passages that we could look to that detail this, but this should be a regular part of of a Christian's life is giving to their local church. That's what funds staff and uh, ministry endeavors and building and sending missionaries. All of that is tied from us faithfully giving to our local church. I think that's what we're called to. But secondly, we're also called to be engaged in charitable giving, especially to those who are in dire situations and those who are in need. It should be a regular part of our lives where we're seeking ways to give to those who are in poverty and those who are in poor, those who are poor. And practically speaking, we have a benevolence fund here at Sojourn. You can go online and click on it, and you can give. That money is 100% exclusively given to those who the church recognizes as in a rough place, and we give that money to help them out. What would happen in our church family if every single one of us committed to give some dollar amount to that benevolence fund every single month? What would happen? Maybe for you, you could afford to put $500 in there every month. Maybe you could afford to put $5 in there every every month. What sort of impact as a church family might we have on this region and those in our church family even who are in a rough place where we'd be able to respond through giving to the Benevolence Fund? Those are two ways that Christians are called to give. And let me also just say as an aside, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're thinking to yourself, here it is, There's the hook. They're trying to get my money. I knew they were after my wallet. Let me just say to you, from the bottom of my heart, we do not want your money. We're not interested in your money. That's not why we're glad you're here. We hope that while you're here, you'll see Jesus for who he truly is, and you'll see him as the uh, greatest need of your life. But as it relates to your money, I'm sorry if you've had a weird experience at various churches and things like that that are just bent on, on offerings and things of that such, but we're not interested in your money. What we're talking about is Christians reflecting God's generosity in their giving. So the, the first implication is, is that we're called to give. But then, as we said, given our propensity to do so in such a way that we can be recognized, Jesus says, take some precautions so that your giving will be done in secret. What's this business about your left and your right hand? What's he mean by that? The point of it, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, is secrecy. This is someone who's giving in a covert manner so as not to draw attention to themselves, eliminating the possibility that they could give glory to us for giving rather than to God for what's been given. This is putting some effort, uh, this is uh, putting some effort, doing some things so that we won't find out, um, so that others won't find out about our giving. When we give to the poor or to our church or any other benevolent act, we should take precautions so that the Lord himself is the only one who knows about it. Now, that's true that we should give in, in secret, but I also think that could be taken to an extreme as well. Like, uh, 
I think it's okay to wear your Toms. I'm sorry if you wore them this morning. You're thinking to yourself, like, dang it, I should have worn my Crocs. I knew it, but I put the Toms on. Like, I think it's okay, like, to wear your Toms or to wear the T-shirt from a charitable cause that you're behind or, or anything else in that matter. Just be aware of what might be happening in your heart as you're engaged in those things. I think another extreme would be to say, I'm not going to give, I was going to give, but I'm not going to because someone might find out it was me. That's probably an extreme too. Like we can, we can give and do our part so that it's done in secrecy. And if other people find out about it, then that's beyond your control. That's beyond you. But we should give uh, even though there is a possibility that people could find out about it. I think it's appropriate to track giving for various accounting purposes and, and tax purposes and things like that. I think all that's fine. The point is here is what's going on in your heart when you give. Is it being done so that you'll receive praise or is it simply being done out of generosity out of the generosity that we've received in Christ. Jesus says that if we give in this way, we'll be rewarded. What does he mean by that reward? To be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure, but I do know this, that in 2 Corinthians, it says that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Those who are quick to uh, send their resources to help those in need. God loves that. He takes delight in that, and he's glorified in it. So maybe at the very least, the reward we, see, we receive for our generosity is the simple fact that God's glorified in it and that he loves it. That's what, how we're called to, to give as believers, to, to do it in secrecy so that we won't lose our reward. We were made to reflect God's generosity. So we're called not to give in hypocrisy, but to do so in a secret manner, in, only before the eyes of the Lord, whenever is possible. So we've discussed what it looks like to give in hypocrisy. We've talked about what it looks like to give like a Christian. Let's now look at the ultimate gift that enables our giving. The ultimate gift that enables our giving. Through Jesus, giving of himself, for our forgiveness and acceptance, we can find the power to give in the way that Jesus is describing. And the first way that that happens is by motivating us out of what's been given to us. Because those who have been the recipients of great generosity are the most generous people on earth. Those who receive much, give much. There was a study done by a PhD candidate in California somewhere that noted that uh, those who are of lowest income, those who are, are most poor economically, are actually uh, the most generous people on the scale of those who give. Those who are in the hardest place, those who are um, suffering financially, those are usually the people who are the most generous. Why is that? Because people who know what it's like to be in need, people who know what it's like to be desperate, are quick to then respond to those who are in a similar situation. People who have received great mercy are usually people who turn around and are eager to give that mercy to those who are in need. So Jesus enables our giving, our generous giving, by showing that when we were most desperate, when we were most in need, without a chance of ever paying him back, he gave everything for us. In his generosity, he held back nothing to redeem us from sin and to give us a new life, and it would cost him everything. Yet, in his matchless generosity, he gave of himself to redeem us through dying on our place, in our place, on the cross. And knowing that we've received such extraordinary generosity, how could we not turn around and be the most generous people on earth? In light of Jesus' gift, we find the power and motive to give 
to others sacrificially. But he not only motivates us through what he's done on the cross to be generous people, within what's been accomplished on the cross for us is also the motive to give in secrecy. Why? Because he meets the longing for approval and recognition that we would try to gain through our giving. I've been a Christian, I guess, for about 12 or 13 years now, and I've been involved in all kinds of various charitable causes and mission trips and things like that, so I've done a lot of fundraising. And when I lived in Texas, um, I was getting ready to go on a missions trip, and the missions organization that I was working with uh, had a, uh, some insight on how we could go about raising money. Their suggestion was to use a fundraising uh, mechanism called egg cracking, and it is exactly what it sounds like. This is what they, it, they, they told us to do. Go to people's doors, go door to door, knock on them. We're in the Bible Belt, so this is like a regular thing, I guess, for people to be fundraising in this manner. We would knock on the door, and we would tell people, if you will give to my missions trip, I am so committed to this that I will crack a raw egg on my head so that I can fund this thing and be sent out. Would you be willing to give for it? Now, people who are involved in cosmetology have told me, like, actually, that's a great, like, conditioner for your hair, so it's not all bad for you. But, like, there's this weird way of showing, like, we're really committed, we're really into it. So I did this. I went through places in East Texas and even Louisiana trying to raise money for the the cause, trying to raise money for the missions trip. And most people would say no, but because we were in the Bible Belt, I often heard a very repetitive response that went like this. Young man, I'm sorry, I can't give to your cause right now, but don't worry, I do give to my church don't worry, I do tithe. Now, why did they need to give that response? Why did they need to footnote their declining to give to my missions trip with the fact that they give to their local church? Why did they do that? I think it's because they're trying to reflect to me that even though I'm not going to give to you, I'm still a decent person. Like, I'm still worthy of praise. I'm still, I'm not greedy. I'm not hoarding my money. I do give my money away. I'm still worthy of your approval. What was happening at that moment was that subtle form of hypocrisy where on the outside they were displaying themselves as someone who's generous, but their real desire deep down was just to receive recognition and acceptance. I think that's something that we all desire in our giving, in our acts of charity, or for any other aspect of of hypocrisy for that matter. Because that, that constant longing and grabbing for the approval of man is just the symptom of the sin that makes us feel so unacceptable. But don't you know that through the gospel, all the approval and acceptance and esteem that you could ever seek is already yours. Through what Jesus has done, you are declared acceptable, approved, and loved. And you don't have to find that before the eyes of people because it's already yours in Christ. Through what Jesus has given to us, we find the motive to give in secrecy. Why? Because all the approval and all the praise that we would try to get through religious observances is already ours. We don't have to find approval in our giving or our parenting or our hospitality or our career or anything else for that matter because it's already given to us in Jesus. You are at this moment, if you are in Christ accepted, loved, and approved of. Regardless of what your week has looked like, regardless of where you've slipped up, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus and turned from your sins, you could not be any more approved of than you are right now. And so you don't need it before the eyes 
of people. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just talk with you for a second as well. Maybe you're even someone who is involved in in charity to different degrees, and that's great. And I think what we're talking about has even relevance for you. Um, if you're, if you're regularly involved in, in, in things like that. Because I, I want you to know that there are not enough charitable causes in the universe to ease that longing that you feel for approval. You could sell everything you have, join the Peace Corps, spend the rest of your life helping others, and you still would feel that longing for acceptance, that longing for praise. Because no matter how much you give yourself to that, there will still be this sense within you that says, I'm, I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. I have to do more. And maybe for you, it's not charity that you use to prove that you're a decent or worthwhile person. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's through your job, getting the, the right job, the uh, proper amount of disposable income, and people recognize you for that, and you feel like that's going to be the thing that eases that longing for approval. Maybe it's through your time at the gym and getting your body perfectly toned up so people will applaud and appraise you for that. That won't be enough to satisfy your longing for approval. Maybe it's through Facebook likes or Instagram comments that you seek to find the approval and and praise that you long for. That part of you that says, I'm not good enough, I don't measure up, I need more attention, exists because you don't have the approval of the God who made you. But all of the approval that you long for can be yours through Jesus today because he died to take all that's in you that's unacceptable, all that's in you that would, uh, that would cause people to look down on you, all of that. He died for you so that you could be accepted just the way that you are. And that's the good news of Jesus to you this morning. So if you're not a Christian, I want, I, I'm pleading with you this morning to turn from living a life apart from God to turn from living a life of sin. Maybe you grew up in church and you've been out for a while and for some reason you've been brought back here this morning. I want to plead with you this morning to turn away from living this life without God and to believe that Jesus died so that you could be accepted, so that you could be approved of. Believe that he died for you and turn from your sin. And if you have that, all the approval that you could ever long for will be yours today. In a moment, we're going to be coming up and we're going to be taking communion. And uh, if that's you, if you're in that category, you're you're not following Jesus, you're not a Christian, I want to ask you to stay in your seats during this time. Uh, Because what we're doing when we come forward to this table is we're acknowledging that we have turned from our life of sin and we've embraced Jesus as, as our only hope for salvation. And if that's not you, then this is just some bread and some juice. There's nothing special about it. So I want to invite you to stay in your seat, but to pray about what I've, what I've talked about this morning. And if at any point something that I've said has uh, sparked interest or you want to talk about it more, or if this morning you're ready to, to stop living this life apart from God and to come to him, please come grab me after this service because I'd love to talk to you about it. But while we take communion, let me encourage you to hang out in your seats and for the rest of us, If you're a Christian, I want to invite you to come forward to this table. And what it symbolizes is your complete approval and acceptance that is wholly yours, earned for you exclusively on the merits of Jesus. You are at this moment fully loved and accepted by God Almighty. It doesn't matter what your week has looked like. Coming to this table demonstrates that Jesus is the one who accepts you. And through his broken body and shed blood, 
He's made you acceptable to him. So come to the table and rejoice in the fact that through Jesus' broken body, you're welcome and accepted just the way you are. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we naturally are unacceptable. In our sin, we have um, no right for approval or praise or to be welcomed in your presence. And yet through Jesus, through you dying in our place, taking on our sin, and giving us your righteousness, we are welcome here. We are welcome in your presence. We are welcome in the church. We are welcome to you. And so this morning, we praise you for the fact that you have died for us to make us whole, to complete us. Lord, I pray for our family, our church family here, that you would set us free from the need to perform in front of people to gain their approval. I pray that you would set us free from that as we rest in the finished work of Jesus and the fact that we're accepted just the way we are at this moment. So Lord, would you impress that on us? Would you shape us? Um, Would you make us a generous people? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.